0: Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello everybody and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski. and I'm joined by co-host Susan Anthony today. Susan, Hello. how are you doing?
1: Oh, I'm great. I love this new setup. I can't get over it.
0: Me too. You got the blue microphone.
1: I do. I always go for the blue microphone.
0: Well, I always go for the red microphone. Because
1: it's a clown nose, right?
0: No, I just like the red microphone. I, I didn't notice that until today. <laughs> <laughs> but its it does look strangely like a clown nose. It's a lot of fun. I like to think of it as, do you remember the game Double Dragon from like for Nintendo? Back in, I guess, the late 80s. I'm
1: old enough that I think I was too old to play it at the time.
0: Well, you're never too old to play double dragon. Okay. So, so
1: how does this remind you of
0: it? Well, they were red and blue.
1: Okay. There so There were two really guys,
0: <laughs> and they were red and blue. So we're like the double dragons.
1: It's wait, so are we fighting against each other or with no, each other? No, we're on the same team. Okay, cool. It's awesome. All right. So as a team... Let's talk about who we've got with us, maybe. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> today we're joined by a master student in biology, Julia Palazzi. How are you today, Julia?
1: I'm well, thanks. How are you guys? Oh, I'm delightful. Yeah, we're fine. Good. So we're happy to hear, have you here.
2: Me too. I'm happy to be here.
0: So you're working with Dr. Zoe Lando. Yes, Lindo. Lindo. Oh, so close. I almost got it right the first time. Um, Dr. Lindo. So what, what's the focus of your research? What do you look at?
2: The focus of my research is above-ground, below-ground linkages in peatlands and exploring these with a traits-based approach. And really, above-ground, below-ground linkages are just a fancy word for plant-soil interactions.
0: Okay. So, there's a lot in there. So there let's is just, a lot. Let's, let's break it down. Let's do it. All right. Um, what is a boreal, boreal peatland?
2: A boreal peatland is a type of ecosystem. So a peatland is an ecosystem that's characterized um, by an accumulation of plant materials. So I guess essentially plants grow and are produced faster than they're broken down, which results in an accumulation of this material And this is mainly due to the types of conditions that define the boreal ecosystem cool and moist conditions, and these very waterlogged or anoxic soils that kind of, um, I guess, slow microbial decomposition. Okay. Okay. Um, So,
1: what you're saying is let me get this. I'm still new to plants and terrestrial ecosystems, so really more is being produced that can be broken down yes the conditions are really just not a lot of fun for the microbes that do break exactly. everything down exactly yep so you you cover a lot of ground here mm-hmm. and you're doing this as a master's student so that's just a couple years here at Western yeah and uh, so we invite you here to talk to you about this interaction because it's something that a lot of people kind of talk about above ground and below ground but never yeah. really all the interactions between the two but you're also here to talk about uh being a graduate student and having what is what
2: so-called disability and did you want to give us a little talk about that? Yeah so I stutter and I I stuttered on a couple of words ago but um, yeah so I've been stuttering since I was eight I think and um, you know what kind of compelled me to come here today was really just to get exposure talk about it and I think it's it's a really important thing for me as a person and student to really um, talk about this and express this part of myself that I, I think I really kind of repressed for a large part of my life. So it's, it's really a pleasure to be here and to be able to, um, to kind of be a voice for, for people who don't always have one.
1: Well, yeah, thank you for coming here for that reason. I'm sure a lot of people go through the sciences and we all know how hard it is and how you're studying. You spend all this time and you get to a position where you do have a lot of presentations. You have to show yourself off. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people kind of get too afraid to take that step, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, Because they get...
1: Yeah, please. Yeah, um,
2: I, I actually, you know, I think stuttering was kind of a hindrance to me even applying here and I think you know in my undergrad I went to the University of Toronto and there I worked at the paleoecology and paleoclimatology lab and I really fell in love with uh peatland research there and I, I investigated kind of um plant communities over time via things like macro fossil analysis and kind of whatever how much carbon was in the peat and stuff like that and um I really fell in love with the research, but there was always this this very internal kind of obstruction to moving ahead and, and pursuing more research, and that really had a large part to do with my stuttering. And I, I think, you know, I, I was really kind of very hard on myself, but also very like, you know, I'm not like everybody else. I can't introduce myself like a child can. I I can't, you know, make small talk smoothly. If, if, I, if I can't say my findings with a fluent voice, you know, who will believe me or who will think that, you know, I really know what I'm saying. You know, everyone will think I'm nervous or whatever. And unfortunately, I've been told by people close to me that, yeah, I could see why you would think that, you know, a kind of Broken sounding speech Would prevent you From sounding believable So For a large part of my life I kind of let that Limit me But Um I, I was able to actually land a job at the Ministry of Natural Resources in Sault Ste. Marie after my undergrad where I did a lot of peatland research and collected peat samples and I had the opportunity to go to the Hudson Bay Lowlands which is the second largest peatland in the world and it's this really beautiful place, this really unique um, ecosystem. And again, I just fell in love with it and actually uh, through field work at the MNR is where I met um, Zoe Lindo in White River and I just fell in love with with White River and um, we you know just kind of I guess I was recruited and just kind of went ahead with um, this master's program and that's how I'm here today.
0: So that that's amazing that, that you've, you've kind of Walked me through with the first question I was going to ask. How did you end up where you are today? Yeah. Um, How did you find the transition into graduate school from everything else you've had, uh, all the other experiences you've had before as both an undergraduate and as a field worker?
2: Yeah, so um, I think that, so I was in May start, so I don't know about when you guys started your programs, but May is a very interesting time. You know, the campus is kind of empty there's not a lot of people around and so I was really able to kind of settle in here and um but it was also very you know the start to my field season and collecting my samples was kind of very prompt and so I was kind of thrown into it but it all worked out and um it um what was the question (laughs) sorry we can edit this out yeah, totally. well, we totally can.
0: Uh, how did you find the transition to, the transition. to graduate studies? Um, I
2: forgot the question too. The transition was good. It was, I think, it was smooth. But again, I think um, the transition to graduate school really um, pushes you to to take on more responsibility, and I think just. This is a thing that probably happens to a lot of people just as they mature and they become older. You're kind of just thrown with this more things to do and to be accountable for. So it was it really forced me to um, kind of be more effective with time management and prioritizing things that I have to do and but it's also I've I mean I'm having a ton of fun here I really enjoy school I really like the lifestyle I like like the research and it's it's really fun I'm really having fun
1: well I really like the part of your story where it was your passion for peatland that kept you going because that's that's the basis of a scientist right you gotta love what you're doing so tell me about peatlands more because yeah pretty cool so
2: I guess to kind of preamble this is so I did my undergrad in physical geography and environmental geography Um, and now I'm in ecology so I don't really have the you know background knowledge necessarily of ecology and so when people kind of when they ask me what my background is I really just tend to say peatland research you know I've I really like peatlands yeah (laughs) um and I was exposed to it early in my or I guess rather later in my undergrad and then kind of worked there and just I just I couldn't imagine you know researching anything else and I just think it's a very cool ecosystem they're very stable very resilient and very powerful and strong and yet very um kind of I don't want to say weak but they are under, they're a very hot topic right now because of climate change and these ecosystems are just huge stores of carbon right mm-hmm. and the kinds of plants that they have there are these very hard to break down kind of we say recalcitrant uh materials that <laughs> i don't know if that's like for a, a tree. <laughs> jargony kind of thing but um there's these very hard to break down material that store in a lot of carbon and um But I guess they are, the concern is that, you know, under these projected warmer and kind of uh, warmer temperatures, will we see an enhanced carbon release due to something like either enhanced microbial activity, but also a shift in the plants that are there. So uh, right now, I guess the main kind of plant, let's say, in a, in a, uh, a porfen, which is a type of Peatland is um, sphagnum moss, and there's a student, Catherine, in our lab who has shown through experimental research in the biomes here at Western that we under enhanced CO2 and warmer temperatures we would expect to see a shift from a more hard to break down plant like sphagnum which stores a lot of carbon because it's so you know hard to break down to a a more labile or easier to break down plant like carex sedge and so with the shift in plant community will we see a shift in you know resilience and all of of the ecosystem and its ability to kind of buffer you know climate change and um a shift in perhaps carbon release and uh those types of things that everybody likes to talk about with climate change
1: so you're saying it's more like a positive feedback what they say or yeah like and it, a small change would create a big change and
2: yeah and I, I think you know i'm catherine would be more uh suited to talking about this as she's very interested in things like ecosystems to But um, I believe there are these kind of stable states, which, you know, if there's a type of tipping point, it can kind of change the uh, trajectory, I guess, of, of the way that an ecosystem may be.
1: So your work, you're talking about interactions between above soil, below yes. soil. And is that plants and microbes? Is that, you're talking invertebrates? Yes. All that so,
2: so this actually leads into really nicely this, um, one of my, uh, I guess a part of my project is um, testing or exploring the relationship between um, plant litter, which is just plant material and m- microbes, which is um, encapsulated in the notion of the home field advantage. So in sports, it's like in sports where the home field advantage, I guess, suggests that the home team or yeah, a team is more likely to win at home. And um, ecologists have seen phenomena like this through experiments where they just switch uh, plants from one habitat to another. And they essentially, it's called a reciprocal transplant. So they just switch the plants um, of the ecosystems. And they have seen that plants tended to be broken down more quickly quickly in their home environment. And they've called this the home field advantage. So, and they've explained this home field advantage. Um, The theory that they put forth for this is specialized decomposer litter relationships. So that specific coupling of plant microbes or the microbial community below ground to the above ground plant litter that they encounter most often. So So
0: it's like a symbiotic relationship then almost between the plants and the microbes that kind of helps each other to thrive better than any other species? I
2: I guess it's more of of a historical contingency of microbes being used to plant litter that they see all the time. And so they're used to breaking that down as opposed to a new type of material being introduced, which they may not kind of have the right... Um, techniques, let's say, to kind of attack that new material. Okay.
1: And we talk about microbes. You, I just, I'm just curious. Are you talking about like bacteria or
2: both? So okay. I, I guess um, bacteria are better able to break down more nutritious kind of plant material, whereas fungi tend to break down more that harder to break down or recalcitrant material. So in peatlands, um, and there are types of peatlands, so, uh, I, the experiments I'm performing, uh, will be between a poor and intermediate FEN, and these names refer to just their relative nutrient concentrations at the site.
0: That's poor and intermediate FEN, like F-E-N?
2: Correct, FEN. Yes. Um... (laughs) So I, never, guess for, I've never heard I guess I guess for some. Uh, so we know
1: bog, we know peat land because of the scotch. Uh, so what, what's a fen then?
2: A fen is just a more wet bog, or sorry, a wetter bog. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully you can edit that one out, but if not, it's it's all right. I'll live. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so peatlands and types of peatlands are inherently defined by their water table level. So. Essentially, we start off with this lake, okay? And plant materials grow, and because of the wet environment, they don't get broken down, so plants start to accumulate. And over time, this accumulation drives the surface of the peat farther away from the water table level. So essentially, if we have a timeline on one side uh, where we have the lake, Then we're going to have that kind of, um, that very obviously high water table. And then we go to a rich fen, which has a a lower water table than a lake, obviously. But it's the highest water table out of all the fens. And then as, as that plant material continues to accumulate it drives the water table further away. And so we go from a rich fen to an intermediate fen to a poor fen and to a bog, which has the lowest water table. And with that, we see a shift in plants where in a rich fen, we tend to see these very kind of flowery types of plants um, and then like marshy plants and then intermediate fen, more sedge, and then the poor fen and the bog. We see that sphagnum moss and those kind of black spruce and uh, those types of, of uh, vegetation that don't require a ton of nutrients, I guess.
1: So you're working on the intermediate and poor fens. So yes. So that's uh, more, you're saying more sedges, more, uh, is it black spruce, you said? And, yeah. Uh, heading towards lower water table. Now, yes. y- you set up these experimental conditions. Do you, or do you mm. go out in the field? Yeah,
2: no, we go out, I go out into the field field and um so my field site is in white river ontario okay. fun fact the home of winnie the pooh oh yeah yeah cool. i know <laughs> i have this mug which i i love that I'll, I'll always love it but um so i we work in white river because uh western has a partnership with the ontario ministry of natural resources and forestry and white river is their just main research site and this is a really great site um, because it has a rich fen and a poor fen and an intermediate fen. And so it's it's just – and they're all kind of closely um, uh, in – like they're aligned in location. So it's really nice. So um, Convenience. Yeah, yeah, very. And White River is about three hours north of Sault Ste. Marie, if that provides you some context. Um, so, yeah. So I go out into the field. And uh, I collected plant material, collected the sedge and the moss. I constructed these things called litter bags, which are just mesh bags filled with plant litter. And I put them back out. Uh, So I put the the sedge. Yep, that's exactly it right there on the picture. I put the sedge. um, Well, I put each of them in each, but I just performed a reciprocal transplant and uh, we'll leave them out there for mm-hmm. a year and then collect them in August, weigh them and see how much mass was lost over that year. Oh, very cool. Yeah.
0: So I guess, what are you expecting to find out of, out of that experiment?
2: Yeah. So I guess the, the typical or the, um, the common view or belief of the home field advantage is that no matter what ecosystem or what plant, we will, no matter what, find that plants will be broken down and lose more mass more quickly in their home environment. But because I'm studying plant traits and all about plant traits, I think the the results of my experiment will be explained by the plant traits. So more nutritious material, more labile, so... Um, more nutritious material will be broken down more quickly and more harder to break down material like that sphagnum moss will be um, will have more mass remaining no matter where these litter bags or or plant litter was collected from and where they were um, essentially placed.
1: So you're not expecting the same thing to happen to all the different say traits so do you mean just the different types.
2: Yeah. I so I guess I didn't explain what plant traits were. So a plant trait is just basically any heritable characteristic that influences fitness. So um, in the context of my experiment and this litter decomp- decomposition, the plant traits that I'll be using to investigate the home field advantage will be the just uh, nutrient concentrations of the plant litter so like the carbon and nitrogen or recalcitrant compounds like lignin and tannin as well
1: very cool yeah cool
0: so i'm just wondering uh, the curious person in me um of of these of these different types of um of boreal peatlands then um, and the the room for for change in them over time. um, What kind of change can happen and what would that mean for their impact in, in, I guess, atmospheric carbon?
2: Yeah, so I really like that question and thanks for asking me. Um, So right now, uh, peatlands are carbon sinks. So they take in more carbon than they release. And under climate change conditions with those warmer temperatures, they may actually shift to releasing more carbon than they take in, which will cause a rise, uh, more of a rise in atmospheric CO2 concentrations.
0: That's scary. Um, it is. So so with increased temperatures, mm-hmm. they could shift toward releasing even more carbon. And that would be, I think we were talking about earlier, having a, uh, the idea of a positive feedback. So that...
1: A small change gets bigger because it affects something in a way that creates more of the problem. Okay. So it's not really positive, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. The thing, the way we think of it. But yes, positive feedback. Okay. What would that?
0: What would a, a change like that mean for the microbial composition then of these peatlands?
2: Yeah. I'm so I'm i'm actually not too sure i'm not a microbial person myself but um i would assume that there would be a change of some sort in the the composition or type i guess of microbial to fungi uh ratio maybe i'm not sure
1: well, that's a whole other, uh, it's a MSc whole other ball game to, there to go for, right? Yeah. So let's take uh, let's take another step back to being a grad student. So let's do it because uh, I, I think this is really important for us to talk about. Uh, so you've you've done it. You've gone to grad school. It's a huge change because it is. there's a lot of different things expected from you here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How are you finding it? How are you
2: finding the community here? Uh, I I love Western. I think it's a very great. I think, um, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience, obviously, in other universities because um, this is only my master's. But I I really like the, the culture here. And um, I think it's a very supportive environment. Everyone's pretty friendly and everyone seems to know everybody. So that's a, a pretty small world, really.
0: That's honestly pretty much exactly the same answer that I would give. And I'm also a U of T undergraduate uh, person. So like, welcome to Western, I guess. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) And that's exactly how I feel about it here at Western. So it's definitely, uh, ditto.
2: Good. (laughs) I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So,
1: but speaking for, you know, as someone who has this, again, I'm going to say quote unquote disability, because lack, there's no good term to describe it. It's, How would you describe having a stutter in in this context, I guess? Uh,
2: You mean in the context of like how Mm. I've been received in the community here or just how it is coping with things I have to do here in school or? Well, yeah, I'm just saying that
1: uh, we have, you know, everything's kind of set up. I, I always find this personally that you're expected in some ways in graduate school and academia to be perfect. There's very yeah. low room for, say, I, I have I have some issues too, that uh, I find it difficult, certain days difficult, and others better. And But you're not, it seems like you're not allowed to have, in academia, I'm not saying Western itself, but you're not allowed to have bad days in some ways. Yeah,
2: I mean, there is a lot of pressure, and it it's pretty much, you know, I try to have as much, fun as I can and kind of work as hard as I can um but I I do find that I don't know I just think that the things that we're required to do I just you know maybe am forced to to practice like way more than others if I have to give a presentation or something or you know for instance for my um proposal assessment, it's a 20 minute capped time length presentation I, I have to incorporate that into my script and the, you know uh, I've asked and and it was okay if I went over by some time but it was better for me quote unquote to to kind of tailor my script and my stutter to match the requirements of what I had to do so I, I don't think that's for all the time and you know, for other opportunities, like the three minute th- th- thesis, let's say, like I, you know, what I feel comfortable or do I think that's fair that, you know, you're capped for that length of time? Not really. So I don't know. There there are just certain things that I um, I noticed that I I perhaps need to be a bit uh, approach things a bit differently than maybe most most would.
0: Is there anything that that you have to do as a grad student, or I guess outside of a grad student life, um, or situations you that you might find yourself in, that that make it more difficult to cope, or that let's say bring out the stutter more?
2: Yeah. So, um, I mean, so stuttering isn't caused by anxiety or nervousness or a lack of confidence, and it's uh, a neurological. T- disorder where just random areas of the brain are activated when speech is produced, but, um, as opposed to localized activation on the left side. But, um, I mean, anxiety and nervousness totally increase the frequency or chance of me stuttering mainly because I guess of the tension I have in, in things that we call articulators like my vocal folds or teeth or tongue or lips, and so there are certain instances That totally increase um, The chance of that But I, I practice Mindfulness meditation And um, I do a lot of speech work Just at home Speech maintenance we call it To kind of uh, prepare myself or, or combat or be comfortable with these feelings of anxiety and kind of not let them hijack me when I, when I have to speak and stuff. And I also think it's really important and what I've noticed over the past even few months before I've reached out to you guys to talk about this is that it really um, depends on my attitude and, uh, you know, I try to approach every speaking situation or presentation or whatever I have to do with just, you know, let's just have some fun with it. Let's just go, you know, let them know you stutter because I think a large part of stuttering is actually caused by trying to hide it. So if you go in with the mindset of, you know, let them know, then it actually reduces the frequency of that quite a bit.
0: Okay back to also uh, as a as a grad student who who stutters then um how how accommodating i guess have you found people to be this is my last question
1: no no we're good, t- oh, good okay good time.
0: all right as long as i'm not getting oh, in no. trouble that happens to me sometimes
1: then i go power oh, okay i thought <laughs> that I was a, a
0: knife sign
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: not that violent i swear
2: anyway yeah. Okay. I um, yeah. So people yeah. are very accommodating, um, but I think like they don't really care that much. It's just me who seems to care. Well, I'm sure that's not true, but you know, for everyone's insecurities, they're just really magnified in our own head. So people are accommodating. They're very nice, um, but that's people who know me, right, and people who know that I st- stutter. Where you know, just kind of the person on the street, they might not have a clue what's happening, or they, I unfortunately heard a story of a a speech-language pathologist um, who teaches a class in communication disorders, and their assignment was to go out onto the street and pretend like they had a stutter, and to talk to people, and then ask them what they thought was happening, and one of the responses was, Excuse me, I might you might need to edit this out, but I thought like one of the people said I, I thought you were retarded. And so it seems that the you know stuttering and I think this is this is one of my main things that frustrates me is that the literacy or the knowledge of it is so poorly defined or or explained and it's just so common and we don't even realize but in media, you know, Harry Potter, if you read Harry Potter the first book, there's a professor there who stutters and it's because he's so nervous. And there are so many songs about st- st- stuttering and just so many kind of passive like j- jokes are made in shows like The Office or whatever that just, you know, people don't even think that think anything of it, but yet it's it's really kind of consumed or absorbed in their Way that they they view this, and unfortunately, I think it's just people don't understand or or don't know what it is, and so I think that's one of the things that that I I wish would change a bit more is the awareness of it.
0: Um, you you don't have to answer this if if it makes you uncomfortable, or we can edit it out. How how do these jokes or or statements like that? How do they make you feel as a person who stutters?
2: Yeah. So. I also like that question. I think that if it's a a public joke, like on a show or something, or if I hear it in a song, that probably makes me more frustrated than if it's a thing directed at me. Because if it's a thing directed at me, I, I can kind of just be like, okay, this person clearly you know is is not totally aware or whatever not worth my time or, or I'll just say you know I have a stutter no like I I did not forget my name I just have a stutter or whatever and um I actually though haven't had a ton of experience with people making fun of me I don't know if if they they do and I've, I've missed it or something but they seem to to not kind of make those comments but Um, I I have had a couple of experiences with students I I TA for who don't know me yet kind of laugh when I stutter and I just say, oh, you know, I I wouldn't laugh like I actually have a stutter. So and then that's it. They don't laugh anymore. So I I think it's just um, a thing of just maybe putting it into context of. um, Yeah. I don't know.
1: Does does that make it feel sort of easier for you just to be able to say it and then, yes. then people can just relax about it?
2: Yeah, I think, um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, is, uh, maybe when it wasn't rolling, but I uh, I have such a, a drive to really, you know, let people know that I stutter and a thing I find with presentations is that I I typically wait to see how I'm feeling at the time, but I... I do sometimes announce that I stutter. And so just to like, you know, expect a couple uh, pauses or or whatever throughout the presentation. And it just makes me feel more comfortable. It's, It's not really for the audience or for anyone else but me. And just kind of, you know, don't listen to that. Don't, well, you can listen to that, but don't pay attention to that and don't make that the focus of what I'm saying. I really want you to hear what I'm saying as opposed to how it's being said. And are you feeling you're being listened to? I do. And I feel that, you know, I do as many things as I can to kind of practice speaking. And I think it's almost like a blessing in disguise that because I stutter, I I guess I'm not forced. It's more of an internal thing. But I practice things like way, way more. So it's it's quite um, a polished product or, or more effective because I can really... Kind of time things better, or just have it really um, tailored to kind of how I need to say things to get it across the way I want.
1: Probably what everyone should do is practice a bit more, especially with their presentations. Yeah. So, what do you say to other people? Because not a lot of people come into the program like we're saying. That kind of expected. You think that you're supposed to be perfect going to be LT grad student, but you. What do you say to other people who may have something that they feel may be an impediment?
2: I feel that the best advice would be to just really try and look at the positives of that. And I think where I, I think personally that when we're most vulnerable and when we show that we're human is a real so- sign of strength and is really what's what is almost attractive and i what's been very powerful for me is reflecting on how stuttering has made me be who i am today which You know, I really um, like who I am today and, you know, I I find that I'm a really passionate writer because writing is the only way that you can say whatever you want to say without actually having to say it. And I think I listen a lot more because, you know, I I really appreciate when people listen to me and the nature of my speech therapy really requires me to pay attention to really tiny things and kind of these very precise uh, m- muscle movements and, and all these things that you really need to have an eye for. And so I think that helps me as a scientist and paying attention to those kind of details that you really need to look out for. So I, I think it's very, it's, it's hard. And I wouldn't say just ignore those negative components, but you know, have compassion for yourself, but really you know find the positives because they're there. They're there, like it's hard, but they're there, and you don't have to look at them and and always, you know, find them all the time. But just know that it it you open up some space when you can find kind of the positives of of what you think maybe might be holding you back.
0: Well, um, we're sort of running low on time. Uh, is there anything else that that you would like to say that we haven't got a chance to talk about uh, before we wrap up?
2: No, I, I think we've covered. Um, most of what i wanted to say and i appreciate your questions they're very um easy and exploratory for me as a a new person on the show and i I feel like you know i I hope i answered everything okay (laughs) Um, i think you did a fantastic job great
0: great well julia thank you so much for coming on to the grad cast thanks um everybody Every Wednesday, you can hear GradCast, a new episode, or every Tuesday, every other Tuesday, you can hear us online. Um, See you guys all next week. Thanks for listening.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
0: That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook, both you can find through GradCast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at GradCastRadio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV. go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is
2: Happy Boy by Kevin MacLeod, and we will see you guys next time.